I'm being an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. And uh, I, I noticed I had to push the button that says, got it. Um, so, um, Bridget, thank you for your warm introduction. Uh, every time I hear that kind of thing, I want to go, boy, if you really knew who I really was, you really wouldn't want to have me here. And then the other part of my brain says, you know, after a couple of 24 hours in recovery, my brain shouldn't be thinking like that anymore. And then I had to remember not to shoot on myself. So I have two sobriety dates. One is October 10th, 1983. And the other one is today. And of the two of them, today is the most important. If I don't keep today, I'm going to lose the other one too. Um, I did not come willingly into this program. Um, like some of you, I didn't think I needed this. Uh, at times, my brain still tells me I don't need meetings. Uh, when my brain tells me those kinds of unhealthy things, I'm reminded of something one of my sponsors told me. Is that when my brain says I don't need AA or I don't need the fellowship or I don't need recovery, uh, that's the mental illness part of this disease. That's what step. So that's what step two talks about the insanity of this disease. He said, you know, the crazy shit you do when you're drinking and using. That's not the insanity that step two is talking about. The insanity in step two is what I know about this disease and my brain still says, I think I could have one drink now after 37 years. I think my brain is different now. I can control it differently. Uh, I'm a different man than I was back then. Uh, I was going through a divorce back then. Now I've been married for 38 years. Um, I've got a couple kids that are grown now and they've never seen me drink. My brain is different. Therefore, I'll bet I could probably handle a drink or two. And I've learned over the years that thought, that's part of the mental illness of this disease. That's the crazy thinking. And, um, you know, I, I've learned over this time that uh, uh, my brain doesn't think normally, sometimes, still to this day. Um, most of my best friends are in this program. I've got a couple other really good friends that are not. And when I, myself and my wife are doing, we do a lot of bicycling, bicycle tours, different parts of the state or in different countries sometimes. Uh, and I'm the only, you know, non-drinker there, the only alcoholic there sober. Uh, no one else is alcoholic that I know of. And I know these folks really well, but an event will happen and they'll all say what they saw in my head. I'm thinking what I just saw. And it's invariably a different experience than they're all having. I've learned to not necessarily talk about it anymore it's not that bizarre it's just it's different enough that i'm thinking you know if i was with a bunch of drunks they'd all be going yeah we saw it the same way but they don't and so uh um i i know my tribe when i'm with them and uh i've learned to um just accept it that my brain doesn't always think uh the way other people think and that what i've also learned is that i don't have to act on what my brain says when it's not experienced things the same way that so-called normal people experience them. I just don't have to react that way. Uh, I can have the thought and uh, I was, I was jogging along the, I live along Puget Sound. I was jogging along Puget Sound a couple of years ago with one of my sponsees and I started laughing. He said, what's so funny? I said, look at that bumper sticker. It said, don't believe everything you think. And you know, I ha I've had to learn to do that. Uh, if I'm not certain or have, you know, weird ideas or thoughts, I should run that past my sponsor. Sometimes I'll check with my wife. Sometimes I'll check with close friends. It's just that 
I know that today I by myself am not enough to stay on an even keel. I know that today. I certainly over the years, what well, hasn't happened in a long time, but I remember the, even the first 10, 15 years, I would go a week or two or three without a meeting because I was so busy with work. That was the excuse I used. And uh, right around day 10, 11, 12, my brain gets squirrely. I start, I start experiencing that um, people are not being as nice to me as they were. Um, I find myself getting more irritable. I think the big book talks about that as being a, a irritable, restless, and discontent. It's just, I just don't feel right. And uh, I've just learned over the years that I just, I just go to meetings. I generally go to, now that I've been retired about one and a half years from the, from the medical field, uh, I've gone to more meetings now than I ever have, probably, probably four or five a week, sometimes more. And I just find, I just feel more centered. I like to think I act more centered, but I certainly feel more centered. And um, I just like myself better. Chances are pretty good if I like myself better, I'm gonna get along nicer with other people. I treat other people nicer. Um, and like I said earlier, at times my brain says, I probably don't need as many meetings or maybe I could have a drink. I've learned over the years that that's just not, well, I can think it, it doesn't make it true. It just doesn't make it true. So I go to more meetings now than I ever had before. So I was uh, I was um, raised in a normal family household, loving parents, neither one of them alcoholic. It does run in my my grandmother on my mom's side was probably alcoholic. And it ran in my dad's side of the family. His brother died at age 42 of uh, cardiac disease in the, in the heart from alcoholism. Uh, and one of my mom's aunts is alcoholic. But neither one of my parents are. None of my None of my three siblings are. Um, had a good childhood, went to college. I didn't start drinking until my college years. Um, probably started having blackouts in college. Um, finished college, uh, worked for a year in loading trucks, a blue collar job, which I actually liked. Uh, and then I spent four years in medical school and then three years in additional training. And then I was in the Navy for thir nine years overseas for a couple of years. So I've been all over the place. And um, I got put into inpatient. <laughs> I got put into inpatient alcohol rehab at the same hospital I worked at as a doctor, and let's just say I wasn't amused by that. Uh, the um, in the military, you, you wear your name tag above your your left shoulder pocket, so mine said Wolf, and above the right side, if you're in alcohol rehab, you have your first name printed in pencil on a piece of paper with a little laminated thing that said Dan. So. Anywhere I went in the hospital when I was in treatment, everybody knew that the doctor was in the alcohol rehab. And uh, let's just say, I didn't think it was good for my ego. I found out later that they thought that it was good for my ego. And um, it was embarrassing to me. Um, from there, I rotated overseas for three years on Okinawa, Japan. And then I spent two years in Oakland, California. And then I resigned my commission in 1988, and my wife and I moved up here to Seattle. And then I worked at a, uh, a, uh, a large medical clinic for 13 years, and then I had a private practice for 15 years, and I retired about four and a half years ago. And I'm saying all that because uh, this disease doesn't really care how much education I've had. It doesn't care um, where I went to school, whether I served in the military or not. 
it's just part of my life. But my point is this disease doesn't really care about any of that. Uh, I've had to do the same things that everybody else has told me that I've learned that they had to do to stay sober one more day. And that's you know, going to meetings, getting a sponsor, doing the steps, uh, having a service position or more than one, having sponsees, you know, doing all the stuff that I hear everybody say. Um, I've learned that um, I, what I say at meetings, if somebody comes up and says, hey, I hear you're a doctor, can I ask you a question? I've learned to say, you know, when I'm in a meeting, the initials behind my name is J-A-D. And they say, what's that? I say, just a drunk. That's why I'm here. I'm just a drunk. I'm here for the same reason you're here. I'm trying to learn how to live life sober one more day. Um, and for me, it, it just has to be that simple. Uh, all my friends in, in recovery, for the most part, have always been uh, in, in the program. Um, I don't hang out in professional circles as my sole identity. I've been blessed in that way. That that, that hasn't been my path. Um, I've been blessed with great sponsors, great sponsees. And um, I was going to add. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. I've certainly had some heartaches along the way, but I've learned that I don't have to drink over them or take drugs over them. Um, when I said I was blessed with good sponsorship, I I, I say that with with love, but at times it's been it's been um, frustrating, and I've been angry at some of them because they wanted me to do stuff that number one I didn't think I needed to do, like four step. Uh, They've had me do things I didn't want to do, like go to meetings every night. Uh, they've made me do stuff I haven't wanted to do, like be honest, <laughs> tell the truth. Um, simple, basic stuff, but it's been a long time coming because I have always um, I have always felt internally that I'm not enough and somehow inadequate. And my number one job is to not let people outside of me learn that about me. Um, and my guess is, uh, you've heard of that enough times. I have certainly heard it a lot at meetings, but it certainly resonates for me as well. I remember when I came up here to Seattle in 1988, uh, let's see, I left my military job after I was a Lieutenant commander in the military for a total of nine years in the Navy. So I left the job I knew for nine years, left California where I lived for two years. We relocated to Seattle. So new location, um, new job. We had a two-week-old baby that we adopted at birth. It was this ton of new stuff. And uh, one of the things my sponsor told me before we left California was, as soon as you get into town, call the AA intergroup and start going to meetings. He said that was a high-risk time when people relocate from one location to another. He said there'd be a lot of stress going on. Go to meetings. Get another sponsor right away. Basically, don't, you know, don't mess around with this this disease is deadly. And, um, and I followed those directions. Um, so I came to Seattle, I called the intergroup and I started going to meetings. And then within a short time, we relocated to where we live now. And uh, I started going to meetings right away. And I got a sponsor who happened to be my next door neighbor. And he was my sponsor for about 15 years till he moved out of town and I, I picked somebody else. My point is I, I've had to learn to not, when my head wants to rebel and say, oh, I don't need that. I have to listen really carefully to that voice and do what's recommended. So my sponsor said, get another sponsor. I did that right away. Um, and, and I'm really grateful. Like I said, I was blessed with good sponsorship. 
Um, I didn't want to do that. I, in my head, I think I don't need to do that. You know, I got a couple IQ points. I've been educated, <laughs> educated beyond my IQ level. I've heard somebody say on a speaker tape one time. And um, I listened to a lot, of, a lot of AA speaker tapes over the years. They used to be on little cassette tapes in the late 80s. Uh, not A tracks. They don't go that far back. Now they could. Be, I don't know. They might. They might. They might have. Thank you, Bridget, for laughing. I thought that was a pretty goofy thing to say. But cassette tapes. I had listened to those driving back and forth to work all the time. And then in the early '90s, they came out on you know CD discs, and now you just download them right on, offline. So, uh, but I've listened to a lot of those, and I, I heard somebody say the the four biggest roadblocks to recovery is health, wealth, youth, and brains. And I remember sitting there going. Shit, I have all those. Um, I am just screwed. I am totally screwed. And uh, and it turns out that um, having good sponsors, being being in enough pain to work the steps, uh, got me through a lot of that stuff. A couple of things I do want to share, just, just I guess briefly, if I can. I did not work any steps the first year, and I relapsed that one year and one night only. Uh, I called my sponsor within a couple of days and. He picked me up and started taking me in meetings again. And then again at a year before I rotated overseas, I relapsed. And uh, using the retrospectoscope, my sponsor said, Dan, we call that a planned relapse. I knew I was going overseas. I had three weeks between duty stations. Perfect time to get high because if I'm drug tested on my arrival in Okinawa, it'll pop negative. Um, so I did that. Um, didn't do it, got, got back to meetings again. And then right at about three and a half years sober, um, I was department head of overseas of a, of a, a medical clinic and we were really busy doing inspections for the Navy and a bunch of other stuff. And I just stopped going to meetings. I was just quote, so busy with work. I was uh, too important. I couldn't go to meetings. And uh, as, as you would, you could tell for me, I, I, or other people here, my brain started getting swirly. I was so preoccupied with work. I knew I couldn't drink because the Navy would kick me out because they paid for my medical education. And uh, so that was just part of the deal. I just knew I couldn't drink. But I remember sitting there one night watching a, a, a TV show and I started thinking, you know, the whole world just lasts. If they don't, they don't under, now that's three and a half years sober, not working any steps, going to maybe one or two meetings a week up until that point, no meetings for about three weeks. And I started thinking, you know, the whole world just lasts. They don't understand us. If you listen really carefully, you hear the poor me, poor me, poor me back there. Um, and I thought, well, fuck it, I'll get drunk. Well, you know, the very next thought was, I'm on a base in the in on Okinawa, Japan, on Navy base. Nothing is open on a Sunday night at 10 o'clock at night. So I couldn't drink. I had to go outside in the local Okinawa community. Uh, that wasn't an option. And my very next thought was, I'll kill myself. Now, I sit here when I share it with you, and I'm thinking, what a, where'd that thought come from? I had no idea. All I know is my thoughts were, I'll get drunk, can't get drunk, I'll kill myself. And I remember thinking, okay, how can I, how can I do this in such a way that it doesn't look like a suicide so my wife can collect the life insurance? How can I you know, try to figure that out? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, you know, if I'm unsuccessful, like a lot of people are, I'll be taken by ambulance to the emergency room of the hospital where I'm a doctor. And that wouldn't look good to the psychiatry patients because I was the director of that unit. 
and I'm sitting there with this crazy shit in my head, it never once occurred to me to call my sponsor. What occurred to me was to try to figure it out by myself, wrapped in my own head, trying to make sense of this stuff. And uh, suffice it to say, and I couldn't call my wife. She was, she was working at that time. I guess I could have, but I didn't. Anyway, for hours, I agonized about it. Finally, went to bed. And the next day, I did call my sponsor. And he said to me, Dan, why didn't you call me last night? Well, my sponsor was a chemical dependency counselor. I knew he went to bed at 9 o'clock at night. This was already 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, midnight. He said, why didn't you call me? I said, well, I know you go to bed at 9, and you have to get up early, so I didn't want to bother you. He said, let me get this straight, Dan. You're telling me my sleep is more important than your life. I said, well, no, that's, that's really not what I'm telling you. He said, that's exactly what you're telling me. He said, it tells you your self-esteem is really low. You really don't like yourself very much. And he said, go get your big book and read the first sentence at chapter five. And I got my big book and I read it to him. And I rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. He said, now reverse the words really and thoroughly and say it again. Thoroughly have we seen a person fail who has really followed our path. And now I start crying. He said, the path, Dan, is across the page. Those are those 12 steps. He said, that's the path. He said, if you want to get well, that's the path we do. And that following Saturday, we start working the steps together. So for me, um, and I don't recommend this for anybody. I didn't recommend it for me. For me, that's where my brain had to get to before I was willing to start doing the work of recovery. For some reason, I thought that just going to meetings and sharing at meetings was sufficient and having a sponsor and talking to my sponsor. And it turns out, at least for me, more had to happen than that. So that's when I you know, began embarking on the 12 steps. About 10, 11, 12 years later, when, when my depression got really bad, I had to seek outside help for that as well. So over the years, for me, it's not been just in only meetings. It's been more than just meetings. So fast forward a number of years, uh, I've been retired now for about four and a half years. The first year and a half, I felt really guilty that I wasn't helping people in the same way that I was before. And um, uh, eventually that passed too. Uh, it just, it, I've learned to be useful in other ways um, and helping other people in other ways. Currently where I am is uh, when Bridget asked me to, to, to speak at the meeting, my first thought was, I don't know what to say. What do I know? I mean, I, I'm just a drunk. I'm, you know, I'm like anybody else. You know, stay sober one day at a time. And, um, and there's a couple things I know. And I heard the lady say this at a meeting, I don't know, maybe 15 years. I'd never seen this lady before. Uh, I went to a, a meeting because my brain was really squirrely. I hadn't been for a couple of weeks. And I was thinking, you know, there's a meeting tonight at 6.30. But if I go to the meeting, that'll take away an hour, hour and a half of time where I could be doing paperwork for my office practice. And paperwork's important. You got to get paperwork done. My head's saying this. I thought, well, if a patient came to me feeling this shitty, what would I say? Go to a meeting. So I went to the meeting. Uh, because I have a couple of years in, uh, in a recovery at that time, I was asked to chair the meeting. I did not want to do that because I wanted to sit and listen. Instead, I shared about how squirrely my head was. And so the meeting was about what do we do when, we're, when our heads are squirrely? And I heard a lady share that I'd never seen her before. And I haven't seen her since. But she said she had about 30 or so where she shared for a few minutes. And she said, she said, let me summarize this. She said, if I protect my serenity, I protect my sobriety. I remember sitting there going, wow, that is so profound. 
if I protect my serenity or protect my sobriety. And I have to do that on a regular basis. Um, I, I guess what it comes down to is I don't like, I don't, I no longer like pain. My, my pain threshold has gotten less. Uh, I don't like feeling uncomfortable. And so I talk about it. I go to meetings. I, you know, I talk to my sponsor. Um, I've had to keep doing certain things. Um, the bit, the most profound thing for me in the past 15 months has been I discovered secular meetings. What an incredible, uh, it has exponentially improved the quality of my life is what it's done. I was pretty much raised in traditional AA, always had a hard time with the God thing. Um, but secular AA has just, it just resonates so strongly for me. And that's, that's where I met Bridget. And uh, I see, a, I think I think a couple of familiar faces from some of the the Tusnu, if I'm saying it right, meetings. Um, the, you know, secular recovery has been my tribe for the past 15 months. I tried, I've gone to some traditional meetings. My home group is a traditional meeting. And, you know, it's interesting. I just, I don't feel the same connectedness there as I do in the secular Zoom meetings. And the, the one or two secular meetings I attended brick and mortar before COVID hit, uh, there was just this uh, kindred spirit connectedness that I just don't feel the same way in traditional AA anymore. Um, who knows, maybe that'll change. I'm certainly not gonna throw traditional AA away. I mean, it got me sober. It gave me a, a quality of life I couldn't have imagined. Uh, and that persists to this day. Um, I think what I would like to do is stop blabbing because I feel like I'm going on and on and on. And um, I ha this meeting has to be more than just about me. So I think I'm gonna close with that. Uh, well, summarize a couple of things. I try to focus on being grateful every day. I try to, in the morning, just say that I'm grateful for being alive. I try to be of service. I try to be a nice man today, a nice husband. I'm not always good at that. Um, I try to do the right thing for the right reason. I stay connected to my sponsor and my sponsees, and I just keep going to meetings. And I'm still learning. I hope I, I keep learning because uh, I don't want to go back to the way it was before. I, I, life is too precious today. So I think that's enough out of me. Thank you very much.